that you allow the Spirit to speak to us, that this text would not merely be words on a page, but that we'd be able to take what's said about it and apply it to our lives. Would you, uh, the Spirit, do its work in our hearts to apply this to our lives? Uh, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word and uh, just learn more about you. Would you be with us in Christ's name? Amen. Titus chapter 3, thank you for reading that passage. Um, one second here. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. I won't read it again. Um, we'll just look at it. Uh, in 1903, uh, Dallas, Texas was a growing city, and a man named Charles Rosser saw that Dallas was growing, uh, and it was missing something. It was missing a hospital. Uh, so he uh, came to very influential people and said, we need to do something. We need to build a hospital. We need something here in Dallas. Uh, Rosser called on the historic uh, First Baptist Dallas, pastor by George W. Truett, uh, in that year, and he asked uh, Truett to help him raise funds to build a hospital in Dallas, Texas. And Dr. Truett, using his influence that he had, reached out to many influential people uh, throughout Dallas, asking them to help bring this work to pass. And uh, they got a really big gift from a guy. It was $50,000, uh, which is $1.7 million today, uh, from a man named C.C. Slaughter, who was a colonel in the army and a he went on to be a very successful cattleman. Uh, but this gift really paved the way for the first hospital to be made, uh, to be brought to pass in Dallas. That hospital then was called Texas Baptist Memorial Sanitarium. It uh, um, was also adopted by the Baptist General Convention of Texas. Uh, this hospital was such a big deal for the city of Dallas, and for someone to give such a big gift to it, a, a Christian man, three Christian men coming together, was a really big deal. Um, this hospital was a 14-room building, and it was used to not only treat people, but train up people who would be the next generation of doctors and nurses. You don't uh, go to Dallas and see this place still standing, but you might go to a place called Baylor Scott and White. This hospital that was once this 14-room hospital uh, is now what we know as Baylor Scott and White, and it came to pass because some Christians came together and said, we need to do this work in this town and to this day, a hundred and so years later, it is still helping us. This work was a good work and they saw it. But little did they know this work they did would pave the way for generations to come. I tell you that story because that's basically what we're getting to in Titus chapter 3. That, that good works, whether good or small, are Christian works in their nature. Uh, in, in Titus, Paul is writing to a man named, uh, Paul is writing to Titus, who's in Crete. Uh, a city that has um, declined since Paul was first there. Titus um, is there to establish healthy churches. That's what we learn in chapter 1. Paul will tell him, this is what you need to look for in healthy leaders in the churches. But this is also what's here. The, the leaders in Crete weren't very good pastors. They were deceiving people. They weren't teaching the truth. They had swayed away from the gospel message that Paul came to them with in the beginning. So moving to chapter 2, Paul talks about first how we need to get healthy leaders in our church to then say, once we get healthy leaders, this is what happens in the church, that the people in the church begin to change because they're working with each other uh, to look more like Christ. It's the older men and the older women reaching to the younger generations to teach them the ways of the faith. And then when we get to chapter 3, it's the question of how do we get all of this doctrinal teaching that we've been given 
to apply to the rest of our lives. And in the beginning of chapter 3, Paul is trying to tell them, this is how you live out the gospel in a culture that does not live out the gospel. This is how you look different from the people around you. So in Titus chapter 3, we see a very important message about how the Christians here in Crete under Titus' leadership should look different than the people who are under bad authority and bad leadership. I think very clearly Paul is informing uh, Titus that God's people must actively partake in good works. This text teaches us why we must do so. So first we see in verses 1 and 2 the posture of good works. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. I think the best way of looking at verses 1 and 2 is that Christians have a responsibility in society, and this responsibility gives us can be split into two categories. The first category is our civil responsibilities. The second category is our social responsibilities. In the beginning here, he tells them the words. He says to them, remind them. He's saying, Paul, to Titus, he's saying, remind the Christians of these standard teachings. What he's about to tell them is nothing new. These are not new teachings. The New Testament church has always understood uh, what Paul is about to say. These are the teachings of Christ that extended to the apostles. And now in this uh, age they're in, in this time they're in, Paul is saying, remind the people of these things. Given the pagan culture that um, these Christians lived in, it was helpful to remind them time and time again uh, of these teachings. The, the corrupt Cretan pastors did not teach exactly what was in line with what the apostles taught. So in saying remind them, what Paul's really saying is continue to remind them of these things. What is it that Paul wants them to know uh, it's the civil responsibilities, uh, as I just said, the civil responsibilities are listed here in the beginning of verse 1. To be submissive to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient. Uh, to be submissive to rulers and authorities is really nothing new. We see this, Paul tells the church at Rome the same thing in Romans 13, that we live under uh, submission to the government. Uh, as this is a standard teaching, as I just said, it also recognizes God's created order for society. Uh, to be submissive to the government means that we accept their authority and live under it carefully. I think this says something about the day we live in now where people think they can bypass the government and do their own thing and live the way, the way they want to. But as Christians, we know and we are, we are taught through Scripture that we must obey the government. Uh, until uh, they sin against God or tell us to go against our Savior, that's the point where we turn. But until then, we listen and we obey our government. We pay our taxes. Uh, we pay for those stickers in our front windows. We do what the government says. It is uh, an active thing we do, which is what to be obedient means. Secondly, the obedience here is not just a general obedience, but I think it corresponds with the government. I think this stresses that our obedience is not something passive, but something we do actively. Paul was and still is calling Christians to live with respect for the rulers and authorities of the government and how they call us to live and to act. Obedience must be a pillar of the Christian life. It must be our way of life, especially when it comes to obeying the structures that God has put in place. 
Obedience has to be a part of our lives. These civil responsibilities here lead us to something good. If we do these things correctly, Paul says that they help us be ready for every good work. The first two lead us to this. God works, uh, good works, excuse me, can only happen by way of a person who lives with the posture ready to do them. And along with the characteristics that will come after this, all these things work together to make us prepared to do good. The person who does not live in honesty and in submission to the forces over them can never do anything meaningful for the people around them. We as Christians live to a different standard, a different ethic. And Paul here is calling Christians to remember that. We live differently than the world. We don't do what the world does. We live differently so that we might do good in the world we live in. So he says for them to be, good, to be ready for every good work is opposite of what he uh, said the Cretan pastors were. In Titus 1, 10 through 16, we're given these characteristics of what the Cretan church was like. Uh, the leaders in the church had people outside of the church saying, I'm not a Christian, but I know that's not how a Christian is supposed to live. I know that's not what a pastor is. And here Paul is calling the real, true New Testament believers to live opposite of how the Cretans are living, especially the leaders in these churches. We are to live ready to do good works. So the question is, what is a good work? Um, this is not from Webster, this is from my dictionary, so this is arguable, but I define a good work as an act of service done for another person with Christ-like intentions to the glory of God. Again, a good work is an act of service done for another person with Christ-like intentions to the glory of God. And I think we've seen in history that there are people who do really big, grand works. They give a lot of money to charities and orphanages. And, you know, you always see them on TV. But let's be honest, none of us will ever do that. Unless you're secretly wealthy and you're not telling anyone. For us, our good works will be the everyday mundane things we do to show people that we believe the gospel and we are Christians who live differently than the world. Your big works don't have, your good works don't have to be these big things. They can be small things that you do time and time again. Good works looks like taking out the trash cans for your elderly neighbor who can barely get out of the house or uh, volunteering to read with children in the local elementary school twice a week. Maybe it's picking up your single parent friend's kid from, from school and letting them hang out with your kids until the parent uh, gets off of work or just giving the parent a little bit of breathing room. A good work could be watching your friend's kids so that they might go on a date every now and then. Good works aren't these very big lofty things. They're the little faithful things we do to come alongside people in life and show them that we care. The size of your good work does not matter, but I think the posture of your work matters most. Paul not only gives us these civic duties and responsibilities, but he also gives us social responsibilities, meaning how we relate to other people. And that list is given to us, uh, as I just read. Verse 2 outlines all of them. The first thing he says here is to speak evil of no one. To speak evil of no one. This has to do with the tongue. I think our tongue is the most dangerous thing 
on us. We can say really good things or we can say really bad things. If you're married, I've been married for four months, I've learned my tongue is a quite dangerous thing. And depending on how we use it, it can build people up or it can tear people all the way down. Our tongues matter. How we speak to people matters. Uh, and our words can hurt us, but they also can follow us. As Christians, we should use our words to build, build up people and say good things and point people towards positive Christian virtues. He says here to avoid quarreling. Quarreling is very dangerous because it's heated debates that can turn contentious very fast. How can we be faithful Christians if we're always arguing and creating barriers, barriers between us and the people around us? You can't do good works if you're always uh, quarreling with people. But I think also quarreling can turn to blasphemy very fast. Overall, quarreling can turn our interactions with people negative very, very quickly. We don't want to offend anyone. He says to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, but he then says to be gentle. I think gentleness exposes the condition of our heart. The level of gentleness that you use with someone really shows uh, how gentle you are or what's going on inside of you. Gentleness is something that many of us have to work at. None of us are perfectly gentle people. I didn't come out of my mom's womb just so gentle and kind. It is something as Christians that time and time again we have to keep working on. And we will be working on it until the day Jesus Christ returns. But in order to do good, to, in order to be good, faithful Christians, it's something we actively have to work on. And then he says to show perfect courtesy towards all people. What he's really saying here is, Demonstrate goodness to all mankind. Perfect courtesy is, uh, I think, just a summary of all of these uh, qualities that Paul has already listed. Well, look, he says, show perfect courtesy towards all people. There's no one excused from this. This includes your spouse and your children, your employer, your neighbor, the person who cuts you off on the highway. No person is excluded from the from the uh, the breath and uh, the breath of people we should so, show goodness towards. Perfect courtesy is hard because it includes things uh, that can bring challenges. I remember I was a student uh, in college. I was a senior in college. I recognized that I needed to like actually figure out what seminary I was going to go to. Uh, so I, with two weeks before a preview day at Southwestern, decided to buy a really expensive plane ticket. And I went to this preview day. Uh, and I sat down at lunch with the vice president, and I just drilled him for an hour. Like, I felt bad for him afterwards, and I still do to this day. I see him about once a year, and every time I see him, I just say sorry, because I asked him so many questions. I mean, I was annoying. I asked about everything about Southwestern, where they said doctrinally, uh, just really random things. And never in that hour-long lunch conversation did he get frustrated with me, did he show he was irritated. He was kind. He was gentle. And I think I went to Southwestern because I said, if this is the type of person that's in leadership here. I imagine all the teachers and the people here are just like it. His gentleness, I think, is an example of showing perfect courtesy towards all people. And what happened for me was I saw him and said, everyone here must be like that. I think when we do show perfect courtesy towards people, people will get an idea, oh, this is how all Christians must be. This is how all Christians should be living. What you do not only says something about you, but it says something about the people that you're representing. Perfect courtesy is hard. It's challenging. 
But we can look to Christ as our example of that. These qualities that Paul is calling the Christians in Crete to will distinguish them from those who have been under the influence of corrupt leaders. Christians are to live in this posture all the time. But the question still remains of why must Christians live this way? So look with me at verses 3 through 7. Here we see why. I call this the motive for good works. Verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done in, by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Verse 4, verses 3 through 7, excuse me, really show us why uh, we must do works, good works. It lays out a picture for us of how the triune God takes a part in making us new people who are able to even do these works. Verse 4, he starts with the word for. For shows us that he's about to contrast some things. He's talking to Christians here in this uh, section, in this book, remember, uh, and it shows us that we are to act this way and do good works and be these people of these qualities for a very specific reason. What he's about to tell us is he's about to describe what every Christian is like before they come to Christ. Before all of us were uh, converted people, converted to the faith, we all could identify with this list that's, on, that's in verse 3. Our life before Christ was marked by bad and evil works that only did us harm. We all fall into this list, some greater, some lower than others, uh, but we all had points in our lives where we were hated, despised, and foolish, and led astray by our passions uh, until we came to Christ. And while Paul is using this to remind us of who we are, I think he's also trying to show us that a barrier to doing good works is that we don't identify with some of the people we do good works for. Within us, it creates this thing called disdain. Uh, disdain is a feeling that someone or something is below us. And one of the roadblocks to doing good works is that we might become so prideful that we feel there are certain people we don't have to do good works for, namely non-believers. I think Paul has non-believers in mind when he's writing this. Uh, to avoid that and to be able to do good works for non-believers, we must remember that we were once like them. All of us in this room were once like them. But what disdain and this feeling of pride should do is lead us to a deeper understanding of God's grace. That is what verse 4 is looking to accomplish. Um, I grew up in the Bay Area where we had a lot of really good athletes who grew up there, went to college in town, but never returned after that. There's one gentleman, he grew up uh, in Oakland, California. Oakland's a very interesting city. He played football at UC Berkeley, was a star player with some really good football players. But he's one of the only guys who left to play in the NFL or played a professional sport and actually returned to the town. I remember as a kid, Marshawn Lynch, the gentleman I'm talking about, would show up in, the, in, in Richmond and Oakland, all throughout the Bay Area, uh, to do good works for people. He would pop up and on Easter, bring Easter baskets to the local church, and he would just drop them off. He wouldn't want to take a picture. He didn't want to be known for these things. He would just do really good things for the community, and he would disappear. But he's one of the only guys who would actually uh, leave and come back, and he still lives there to this day. After he retired, he moved back to the Bay Area. 
What I think Marshawn Lynch teaches us is that he doesn't look down on the people that he once was amongst. We as Christians must live with the same mindset that we were once amongst a group of unbelievers, but now that we are living a life in Christ, we can't forget that we were once there. We all were once there, and that should fuel us to do good works. Uh, we, should, we should look at people like that and say, we want to serve them. We want to show them what the gospel can do to change how we act and how we live. This reminder of who we once were really serves as a reminder that only, the only difference between us and unbelievers is the grace of God. Look at what Paul says next in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing and regeneration of renewal and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Paul says here, but, but shows us he's now telling us something else uh, to add on to this. He says, when the loving kindness uh, of God our Savior appeared, um, the love and the kindness are two attributes of God. He's, it, though he says the goodness and loving kindness, what he's really trying to say is the love of God and the kindness of God. These are two attributes of God's being that come together in unity. Uh, and God's role in these verses are given to us in the beginning. God did this out of love and kindness toward man. He appeared to us uh, by sending Jesus Christ. Uh, this here has less to do with the world, but more about the character of God. That God, in his character, decided to do this. And what did he do? He appeared to us. This appearance is a reference to the incarnation, the coming of Jesus Christ. God sent Jesus to us that we might be saved. While God did this a long time ago, the effects of that is not felt by all of us until we put our faith in Jesus Christ. The work has been done, now it's just ours to accept. And what are the effects of this? It's our salvation. Paul will continue on here telling us how our salvation was accomplished. He saved us, he says, not by uh, works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. This is very familiar Pauline language. God saved us by his mercy. The salvation that is ours is not because we did anything to earn it, friends. God did that for us freely. Thus, there is nothing salvific about doing good works. The works we do flow out of an understanding of what God did for us through Jesus Christ. This is central to doing good works. We do them from a heart that has experienced the love, the grace, the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. And we model that same love and care for others. Some of us in here have a hard time understanding that God did something freely for us. Maybe some of you are perfectionists or you tend to lean on yourselves. We won't ever be able to live the Christian life correctly until we stop striving. We did not earn our salvation. There's nothing we can do to keep it. We need to accept this free gift to God and surrender our lives to Him fully so that we might live in the freedom that He offers us. Friends, rest in the mercy of God. That mercy saved you and it will keep you. Paul doesn't stop there. He continues on in the, this explanation of the work of Jesus Christ by saying uh, the next part of it. By the washing and regeneration, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This refers to the inward and outward work of the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. The Holy Spirit is the agent of our salvation. 
He says here uh, two terms, regeneration and renewal. Uh, regeneration refers to the external change and spiritual regeneration, while renewal uh, refers to the inward transform- transformation that happens in our lives. This regeneration uh, happens by believing in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're revert into people no longer living according to the flesh, but people who have been given new life abundantly. As he mentions renewal, he's talking about what the Holy Spirit does in our hearts to change us and gives us something to live for. No longer are we slaves to our heart's passions, but we can now turn and live as slaves of righteousness. So my question to you today, the question I really come to ask is have you been rebirthed and renewed in Jesus Christ? If so, you have all you need to go out and do good works. But if not, you will never be able to do good works uh, for the right motives and uh, the right motives and reasons. For those of you who sit here and might not be a believer, I call you to repent and believe the gospel. This gospel can set you free from the life of sin and submission that you live in. The passions that you enjoy now will lead to ruin. In our flesh, we have no hope or ambition. We have no reason to be living. We're a slave to sin. But in Christ, we're given hope. We're given purpose. We're given new life. And the Holy Spirit empowers believers to do good works. And if the Spirit is not inside of you, doing good works will be challenging. They will be very few. Repent and believe the gospel. This uh, Paul mentions because it is central to doing good works. Uh, but he does not stop talking about the Holy Spirit. He says next, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is another way of being reminded of God's mercy towards us. This brings us to see how the Trinity works in our salvation. How God the Father and Christ the Son and the Spirit all work together to show us how we have come to be saved. Jesus is central to our salvation. He is the one who died for us on the cross. And Jesus is also central to the Christian life. Everything that we see Jesus did in his earthly life and his death, we can model in some way in our Christian life. But what does he say about this salvation uh, that was made possible through Jesus and is worked out in our lives through the Spirit? He continues on, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are justified by grace, meaning that we don't really do anything, no works or actions can bring this saving grace to us. The grace of God through Jesus Christ means having saving faith um, is a key for us to do what he has called us to do. This free gift enables us to live the Christian life the right way. Some people uh, try to, in some practices, excuse me, try to make works a part of it, but Paul makes it very clear here that being justified by his grace is a reminder that there's nothing we did to earn it. It's doubling down on what Paul has already said. Uh, Justification means being declared righteous by God. And it gives us our inheritance. This inheritance is something that we feel some effects of now in this life, but it won't be complete until Christ returns in the future. This is hope that we have, that Christ will return for us, and it's out of this hope that we live each day of our lives. This hope gives us the fuel to live and do good works. The gospel is a message of hope, a hope that we can spread and tell others about. But friends, we can't do good works. We can't be excited about doing works if we're not excited about the gospel. 
And I'm afraid there's too many Christians who receive the gospel and just kind of set it on the shelf. When they hear it, it's not that exciting. Every time we hear the gospel, it should light a fire in us. That this Savior that we have has died for us and set us free from our passions. I don't know why people can't get excited about this. When we remember who we once were and who we now are, they're two different people. Christ has given us an opportunity to live and show people that the gospel is good news for all people. So if you can't get excited about the gospel, you will never get excited about doing good works. They go hand in hand. Once you understand the motivations of good works, the gospel, then you will understand the necessity of good works. And in verse 8, Paul points us to the seriousness of good works. Look with me finally at the urgency of good works. Paul says in here, verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may carefully devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for the people. Uh, what Paul is saying here in this last section is uh, very important. Usually when the saying is trustworthy is said, is pointing in the pastoral epistles to something that he's about to say. But what Paul says, the saying is trustworthy, he's pointing back to everything he just said from the beginning, namely the message of the gospel that he just spent so much time explaining. Why would this statement be trustworthy? And why does it connect to good works? A proper understanding of the gospel gives way to a proper understanding of the need for good works in the Christian life. We do for others around us out of the same grace that God has saved us with. If you do not get the gospel, I said it and I'll say it again, you will never perform good works properly. When you look around Austin, there's so many needs in our town. Uh, if you just drive around this neighborhood, I'm sure you can find opportunities to serve the people. Namely, specifically, there are so many non-believers in this town that will die and go to hell because they don't have anybody of uh, Christian uh, belief around them. Friends, we have opportunities to go do good works that will then lead itself to sharing the gospel if we're diligent. But again, you can't do these things. You can't serve the people around you, your town, and your neighborhood without being excited about the gospel and the opportunities it gives you. So pray to the Lord. Ask Him to show you ways to engage in good works because the gospel, friends, if we believe it and we trust it, will show us how we might do that. Paul says here, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. What Paul has started talking about in the beginning in verse 1 and 2, he comes back to at the end of this. Uh, he comes back to say that good works are not optional, but rather they are necessary for Christians who believe the gospel. Paul is saying to Titus, not simply insist on these things, but really stress these things to the people. Stress this teaching to the people. And these things he's referring to as good works. Uh, Paul understands the correlation between the gospel and good works. And he's saying, stress to them their need to do these works. Paul is showing us an urgency about the Christian life and the things we must do to show that we are truly children of God. And at the heart of this letter to Titus, Paul is calling the church to put into practice the sound doctrine that they believe. Only one who believes the gospel does not shy away from living it. The gospel not only affects our life with fellow believers, but also affects 
the way we live amongst non-believers. Good works, remember, are to be done to all the people. Your good works won't save you, but your good works might lead to someone else becoming saved. Good works can open the door for you to share the gospel and call the unbelieving people around you to repent and believe in the gospel message. Paul says here in the end that these things are excellent and profitable for the people. These things are good and beneficial for the people uh, in which they serve is really what Paul's getting at. It's good for all the people in society. People need good works, and if Christians won't perform them, then who will? But there's a reality to good works that Paul doesn't bring up that I think is really noteworthy to talk about. And good works don't necessarily mean easy works or good results. There are times you might do a good work for someone, and they might see you as suspicious that you're trying to get something from them, or you're trying to lure them into something. Or good works might take a great deal of sacrifice on your end to accomplish. Uh, They could also cause you pain and heartbreak. But friends, you will never look more like Christ and identify with him more than when this occurs. Jesus is our example of how to do good to those who cross our path in this life. Friends, very simply, what Paul is teaching us in Titus 3, 1 through 8 is that good works are rooted in the message of the gospel. If you believe the gospel, then you should do good works. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, this call from Titus to do good works and to serve uh, the people around us. Would you help us to live a life uh, that's dependent on your grace and realizes how your grace has afforded us this opportunity. May we never lose sight of the gospel and may we live it each day of our lives. In Christ's name, amen.